This is Iron Sports. We're so happy to have Doc Gooden on the show uh, talking about this. So, Doc, one of the things I wanted to bring up with you is the Hall of Fame. We just had the Hall of Fame. Scott Rowland got it appointed in the Hall of Fame this past week. Your candidacy, I mean, people think you're in the Hall of Fame, which is, um, you know, which, which you probably, you know, which you should be in the Hall of Fame. What's your feeling about this in terms of, I looked at every site that says, you know, of the top, the omissions, the people that should be in that aren't in, you're in everyone's top 10. So what do you think about wow. getting in the Hall of Fame, you know, any day now with a, with a committee uh, nomination? Yeah, it's all with the committee. You know, no, no offense, and I, and I mean this sincerely, no offense about none of the guys that are in the Hall of Fame. Out of utmost respect for those guys that deserve it. But um, I don't think about it as much until the votes come around and start conversation come around. And I look back at it, and I look at my numbers and some of the guys that are in it numbers, and I say, yeah, I think I deserve to be in there. And they say, well, you didn't get 200 wins. No, I didn't. But if you look at the amount of starts that I had, composed to the other guys' starts, quality starts, first five years compared to, like, Kofax and those guys' five years, I think I had the numbers there. It sounds weird when you talk about yourself on that. But I, I do think I belong in there, but they look at, well, he had a drug problem, drug addiction. Yes, I did. I claim that. But at the same time, I don't think I deserve a life sentence for the mistakes that I made in my life. Um, and the numbers, you know, they speak for itself. So I think, yes, I think I do deserve to be in. They, they, you know, I haven't got the vote, so that's fine. I still enjoy my career because, you know, once I got to the majors, I told my dad I just want to play a long time and stay healthy. I never thought about winning awards. never thought about the World Series. So I got to win three World Series. Got to win just about every award a pitcher can win. But do I, to answer your question, do I think I belong in the Hall of Fame? Yes, I do think that. But it didn't happen. You know, I'm not um, losing sleep over it. But maybe one day it will happen. We'll see. Well, you know, the one thing about your statistics is a lot of these, we're seeing compilers. Like, you know, Harold Baines gets in, he plays along, you know, not anyone's top 10 MVP or any, and then he suddenly is in. Um, you, at the top of your game, was by far the best. Your season in 1985, I mean, I'm going to give these statistics. You just, people can't believe it. 24 and 4, 153 ERA, 16 complete games, eight shutouts, almost 276 strikeouts. To show what the shutout, there was six shutouts. All the thousands of games that were played in baseball this past year, there were only six total one, and in one year you had eight shutouts. And then in a 50-game period, which is amazing, from August 11th, 1984 to 96, you for 50 starts, you were 37 and five with a 1.38 ERA and had 412 strikeouts. And it's considered the greatest 50-game stretch in the history of pitching in baseball. So clearly, the dominance level that you were at the top of your game, no one's been that dominant. Yeah, thank you. I, I wasn't aware of that, so you gave me some more. <laughs> some ammunition, right yeah. I appreciate that. But, I you gave me goosebumps by that. Um, that's just something else to say. You know, the numbers are there. And, it, and it's good to hear, like, when you guys mention that, and then fans I run across mention it, and a lot of players that are in the Hall of Fame mention that. It's good to hear. Um, you know, I had I had a problem in, in like, well, alcohol and drugs. And, again, I'm not justifying anything. I claim all the mistakes I've made in my life. But, you know, I had a disease. Drugs and alcohol is a disease. Um, and I had that. That basically cut me short from the numbers I had. And like I say, from the top of my game, you look at when I had my addiction, when the problem started, that's when the numbers started to increase. But on the only thing that's kind of unfair, I would say, when you have the type of year that you just mentioned, or the run that I had for those that period of time of 50 starts, everything you do after that is compared to that. Right. And I remember having starts in 86. I remember beating Fernando Venezuela 3 nothing. only had like four strikeouts. And the first question was, what happened? You don't have four strikeouts. <laughs> I mean, I just pitched a complete game of shell against one of the best pitchers in baseball. But when you have that type of career years at so, such an early 
started their career, everything is compared to that has probably worked against me as well. Yeah, in 1986, you were 17 and 6. In 87, you were 15 and 7 with 3 2 1 ERA. 88, 18 and 9, 3 1 9 ERA. And then, you know, even 89, 9 and 4, 90, 19 and 7, 91, 13 and 7. So, you, you know, continued a long period of time. You know, it's, it's a shame, like, if you're in football, like, they would view this, anybody in football, people, you know, Terrell Davis had four great years. That's all of fame. Somehow in baseball, they try to add up these numbers. Well, if you would have played 20 some years and added more, you know, those things. But, it clearly, at your best, you are better than anyone else, and I think that's that's the strongest uh, case for you. Considering how these people with with sort of like when even Scott Rowland, people said, "Well, when I watched Scott Rowland, I didn't see a Hall of Famer." When people were watching you pitch, they saw an all-time great. Wow! Yes, thank you for the, the kind words, and right there. So you know, like I said again, I'm happy for all these guys at the end. But um, some of them, some of the guys at the end, there's no knocking against the players at the end. I'm not knocking nobody, but I think I've had better careers with some of the guys at the end. With the worst I've won, the, the, the World Series rings I've won, and some of my accomplishments I've had. But, you know, unfortunately, you know, the writers, they have a lot of power and nothing against the writers. Um, and they had to pull to, to decide who goes in and who don't. So maybe down the road somewhere, the committee can get me in. Because I know now, with the way the pitching is, the guy's only going four and five innings, and that's just the way the system is. I don't, I don't like the pitchers. So I'm sure a lot of these pitchers can go a lot longer than they're allowed. But the way, this, the, way the baseball system is now, a lot of these guys are not going to get the 200 wins, and how are you going to put them in the Hall of Fame? So maybe down the road I'll get the opportunity. Hopefully I'm still here to see it. Um, you know, today I'm healthy, feel great. You know, July gave me three years of clean and sober, so that's the thing I'm most proud of. But uh, plus my baseball career, especially now that, you know, talking to you guys and baseball getting ready to start back up, you just think about it. And when the Hall of Fame balance come around, it just crossed my mind. Sometimes I think, what could I have done differently? If this didn't happen, if that didn't happen, then I look back at it and say the things that I did accomplish to be proud of the things I did accomplish. Correct. I mean, you just said only two pitchers right now currently pitching have more wins than you or their Verlander and Scherzer have more wins than 200. So, um, but I want to switch subjects to another a topic that's great. I, your son, Dylan Gooden, announced he's going to Maryland over Penn State. I'm a big Penn State football fan. He's a linebacker. You would think he would want to go to linebacker you, but chose Maryland yeah. over Penn State, Rutgers, and Virginia Tech. So you must be excited to have your uh, four-star uh, son, uh, Dylan going to University of Maryland next year. Oh, 100%. I'm very proud of him, his accomplishments, and he set a path himself. He played a little baseball when he was younger, but unfortunately, when his mom got divorced and moved back to Maryland, he set the path. He said, you know, I enjoy football and basketball. He plays basketball a little bit now, but football is my love. I say, wow. I say, continue playing baseball. You never know. You know, football is my game. But he stayed with football, and then when it's, when it's official, when he signed the letter, well, actually, he signed a letter um, on February 1st. He'll sign to make it official. But when he committed to Maryland to stay home and get an opportunity to play right away as a freshman, and talking to the coach, the head coach, and the um, defensive coordinator, they're going to say, you know, his opportunity to play right away. That's all you can ask for. And the main thing is the academics is good. And I say the worst thing can happen, you get a free education. So take advantage of that. But um, as a player, I'm very proud of him. Couldn't be more proud of him than what he's doing and what he's accomplishing and making a name for himself. Well, Coach Loxley has a great program up there in Maryland, and uh, he's going to be playing with two his brother, Talia. So, and Maryland's an up and coming team, so they're going to make it, they're going to do well next year. So that should be exciting to be to be in there. I hope you get to go up to see some of his games. That would be a lot of fun. Oh, most definitely. Um, I went with him a couple this year. Went there. He was on the sideline. I sat up in the stands to watch some of the games. It's a good program, and um, I'm excited about it. And it's the first time. Like I have four boys. Um, a couple went to college, but never got to play. So he gets to play. So. I'm very proud of him. And then uh, two weeks, two weekends, two weekends ago, 
he played an All-American Bowl down in Orlando, Florida. Got to see him play in that and all his brothers and sisters and nieces and nephews got to come see him play. I thought that was great, great support, and he loved it. So um, hopefully he stays hungry. Gain a couple more pounds and get to follow the rest of his dream. That's great. We're talking to Doc Gooden, legendary base, major league baseball player for the New York Mets, New York Yankees, other teams. So you grew up in Tampa, and you were a baseball pitcher when you were little. Like you just love your dad put you in, and you just love to throw. Uh, talk about growing up in Tampa and 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 your love of baseball at an early age. Oh yeah. So the thing was, my dad was a semi-pro coach in baseball. He coached little league baseball. He coached softball, women's softball. So as any kid, you know, I should follow my dad wherever he would go. And so when I was smaller, the guys should roll me the ball. When they got older, they started playing catch with me. And <laughs> well, I got got involved playing, um, um, what's it called, regular baseball, organized baseball. Was One of the guys on his team was a little league coach. Drafted him on his team, and I started playing and started pitching me right away. So he got a strong arm, he got a pitch. And then so my dad just told me how much he loved baseball because he, by then, you know, you only had the one game a week on Saturdays with Joe Gaggiola. And we got all the Atlanta Braves games on the radio because we lived in Tampa. And we went to all the Cincinnati Red Spring training games. We just growing up around it, watching games with my dad, you know. And, and while watching games with him, he would quiz me. What did you throw here? Why did you throw that? Like, he just knew I was going to be a pitcher. And my nephew, Gary Sheffield, was raised in the same house. My sister had him very young. And he knew Gary was going to be the hitter. He knew I was going to be the pitcher. And so he would quiz his own questions. I didn't know what he was doing. I thought he was watching the game. But he, I remember one day asking me how much – I like baseball. I said, I like it a lot. One day I'm going to be on TV. I don't remember that conversation, but he told me I had it. I was like seven, eight years old. So every day he came home from work, we go to the park and we work on these drills. It wasn't fun because he take I'm fine. He take us to the park and um, work on all these drills. But you don't, you don't have a ball, you don't have a glove, you don't have a bat. So it wasn't fun. Uh, I remember telling my mom, Dad's making us go to the park, do all this stuff. But we're not throwing the ball. We're not hitting the ball. All these different things. Thank you. All right, thank you. Thank you. Um, so we do all these drills, and at the time, it didn't make sense. As we got older, it started making sense doing the different drills he had us doing. Um, the one regret I do have is not having a conversation with my dad to find out where he learned his knowledge of baseball from um, because he was way ahead of his game or teaching the game to me. And as I got older, pitching became more of a lot of fun, and that's something I always wanted to do going to high school. I just found out, you guys will love this. I just found out, a guy wrote me, 35 guys from my Little League Park, not high school, my Little League Park, made it to the Major Leagues. That is, what, what was the name of the Little League Park? Well, that's amazing. Uh, Be- yeah, Belmont Heights Little League in Tampa, <laughs> Florida, off of MLK Boulevard. I, I didn't know it was 35 guys. I know the, off the top of my head, you have myself, Sheffield, Carr Everett, Abbott Everett, Floyd Yeomans, Vance Lovelace, uh... Tyrone Griffin, Derek Bell, those guys at the top of my head. Um, I'm not sure. The Did you guys play like the Little League World Series or anything? Did you get enter that? Yes. yes. Little League World Series. I got to play in that one in 1975. I was 10, so I couldn't participate. Then I played in the Senior League World Series in 1979. Taiwan beat us both times. I, I still say today, I'll take to my grave, those guys had to be older than what they said. Because, <laughs> and the reason I said because those guys were way advanced than us. We was, I mean, we, we got, and plus, those guys don't grow as big, you know, when they're adults. These guys look like grown men when they're 15. So, I, mean, I don't know. Oh. Winning, but they had to be older. Had to be. 
That is, that is, those games, someone should find videotape of those games. Those would be so exciting. So you go and go to the Mets and you get drafted and, and you were in the minor leagues for, you know, a lot of the people are even stars are in the minor leagues for at least a couple years. You lasted just one year. You flew through the entire system when you're 18 years old. Yes. And I think a big part of it was because of David Johnson. When I was in Kingsport, David was a roving instructor with the Mets. And I remember I was having a bullpen section with Alex Jackson passed away, I think, a couple years ago. But he was my pitching coach, and David came over and he was challenging me. He'll say, let me see you throw one down and away outside to a right-hand hitter. I'll do that. Let me see you curd ball back to a left. So I did everything he told me, and I was just on that day. And then the next year, in 83, he was a triple-A manager in Norfolk, Virginia, for the Tidewood of Ties. I was in Lynchburg. And after our season in Lynchburg, I called up triple-A with David, and I won two big games for him in the playoffs, and we won the triple-A World Series. And he says, wherever he managed the following year, I'll be on his team. So I'm thinking at that time, you know, I'm only 18, so at least I'll be in AAA. Um, he got the big league job while we was in the instructional league. And just joking, I said, David, remember what you told me? He goes, oh, yeah, you're coming. And I got invited to spring training as a non-roster player. And while I was in spring training, after every start, you know, you talk to the media. They say, yeah, they, the office say, you're probably going to AA, maybe AAA because of your age. Me like a kid, I was running David's office. Dave, they said, I'm going to double it, triple A. Dave never tell me. He said, don't worry about it. Let him talk. You're going to make the team. The last day of spring training, I think we're playing the, the Tigers from Lakeland, and we're getting ready to fly to Cincinnati open the season. And he told me, he goes, congratulations, you made the team. Oh, that's awesome. And I was excited, but to see the joy, to share that with my father, to share it with him that I made the team, I'll never forget that look that was on his face because it was initially his dream that became my dream. It was just one of the greatest moments that I ever had. And then your rookie year, you're the youngest pitcher to ever pitch in an All-Star game. You see, when you came in, you struck out the side. And I think Fernando struck out the side before you. So I think you were, it yeah. was Fernando and then you so had like six strikeouts in a row. You finished the year second in the Cy Young, which everyone thinks you should have won the Cy Young, your rookie of the year. And uh, it was just an amazing 17-9, 260-ERA, seven complete games, three shutouts, 218 innings. Uh, pitched 276 strikeouts. I saw somewhere where they said that you only made $40,000. So you were 17 and 9, and you made $40,000 that year. Yes, that's true. Uh, they say only 40000 but that was a lot of money to me. You know, I remember being in high school and sharing the same winter coat with my dad. Um, you know, things were tough, you know, sitting in front of the stove to get heat. So, I mean, coming from where I came from, 40000 was a lot to me. I wasn't complaining about that. But one of the greatest things about that moment was throwing to Gary Carter. I remember after three strikeouts, Gary saying, wouldn't it be nice to do every fifth day? Not knowing we was going to trade for Gary that November. And he played a huge part of my success in the 85 season. Just the communication we had, the love we had for each other, and the love that he had for the game, and bringing the best out of me every night in 85. It was just tremendous. But in 84, as you mentioned, no, no disrespect to Rick Sutcliffe, but I thought I should have won this high young that year. Um, I finished second, which was a great honor as well. And the win rookie of the year, when you, when you only got one shot to do it, that probably was my, my biggest reward and my favorite reward that I won because you only had one shot to do it. Um, so that was great. And then the guys that I had on the team with Keith Hernandez, uh, Mike Torres for a little bit, helping me learn the league, helping me learn the hitters, and just being there for me played a big part as well. And I can't say enough good things about the, the uh, impact that Mel Stoudemire had on my career as well. And then 85, we just talked about that earlier in the interview. It was one of the greatest years ever. 24 and 4, 153 ERA again, 16 complete games, eight shutouts, 270 strikeouts. 
From August 31st to September 16th, you threw 31 consecutive scoreless innings over four games. And then through October 2nd, you threw another 49 consecutive innings without allowing an earned run. I mean, it, it was just tremendous. It's the high, highest quality start percentage for a given season ever in that season. And you had, 30, you had 33 quality starts in 35 games. So it must have been just, you're pitching, everyone's going to the games. It's must-see every night you're out there and Chase Stadium, and, and you're doing it in New York. It was must have been so exciting to be in that atmosphere and that environment. Oh, man, that was crazy because um, to have that success, and like you mentioned, the success that I had my rookie year and the knowledge that I had my rookie year and you know the experience that I had my rookie year was just a tremendous, tremendous feat. So... Going to 85 and having Gary Carter as my catcher, as I mentioned, was great. Um, with the knowledge that he had, definitely helped me. And Gary wanted me. It didn't matter who was batting, uh, who was playing, what the score was. They're going through that. And Gary, like, he wanted me every game. He wanted me pitch a shutout, pitch a complete game. He wanted me to get at least 10 strikeouts. And sometime, if we were winning 10 nothing, he wanted me to pitch like it was 1 nothing. <laughs> Gary played a big part. I mean, he would come out there and get in my face sometimes. I mean, we'd be up 10 nothing. The number eight hitters up. He'd get a hit. He'd come out there. What are you doing? You got to bear down. Let's go. He wanted to totally dominate. So he played a big part of that. Having the fans, you know, clapping when I got two strikes on the batters, they played a big part of that because the hitters don't want to go down looking when I had two strikes because that's not clapping. And if it was a close pitch, the umpire was going to ring him up because if he didn't, the fans were going to let him have it. <laughs> so all that stuff worked to my advantage. But it was just a fun time. And like you say, the expectations bigger crowds, the bigger of the media attention. It brought a lot of a lot of pressure, but I suffered the challenge at the time. It was just a lot of fun. Having great teammates to support me played a big part as well. And then eighty six, the magical season, uh, where you win the World Series. I remember I was at, at, at University of Pennsylvania at that time, and I was in a high-rise building. And in the World Series against the Red Sox, it was like when you go to Penn, it's like everybody was either from Boston or New York. So like people were just glued to their TVs. And, and after you guys won, I saw couches and chairs and tables thrown out of the building. I've never seen so much people with the Red Sox fans were so upset about that. But you. Oh, man. But in the National League Championship Series, you beat Mike. You played went against Mike Scott in two of the most amazing games. Where one game you were you lost the game it was one nothing, and the other you had a no decision, one nothing. So to, to pitch ten innings and give up one run two times, just amazing. That was amazing, and just, like you mentioned, going against Mike Scott, who was the best pitcher in baseball in '86, was a tremendous feat. And then facing my childhood idol, my second start, I think it was Game Five, Nolan Ryan to go ten innings, which but that was just great. I know. Uh, I came out of there with no, no wins. Like people always talk about, you still have no postseason wins. But they look at the stats and the, the games I pitch. I mean, I did my part. And so, I mean, that was great to do that because we didn't want to face Mike Scott in game seven because, you know, he was undefeated and he was so much hit his head. So we had to win game six. That was like our game seven. Um, and so going into the World Series, obviously I didn't pitch well in the World Series. And again, not to justify I thought they had a good lineup and they got me, but I was just exhausted from the playoffs. You know, going 18 innings or whatever in those games, I had nothing left going to the World Series after the, the season I pitched with the amount of innings I had. Thrown. So then you you know you finish your you have your a few more years at the New York Mets, um, and then I just want to jump to the time when you came back with the Yankees and you were out of baseball for a year, and then. What was the – did George Steinbrenner call you up? How, how did you get involved, you know, come back in to start pitching for the Yankees? Okay, so this is the first time I've, I've told it, told the whole story how this really happened. I actually had a trout with the Marlins 
at the end of the season because Sheffield, my nephew was playing there and he got me in trouble. And Dave Dombrowski was the general manager. I went there, I threw on the side, threw well. We actually had a verbal agreement for two years, $5 million. Um, I told him I was going to Puerto Rico just to a little bit because I had missed the, you know, the 95 season. He said, that's fine. When I got home, a good friend of mine, Ray Negron, I don't know if you guys know that name, he works in the Yankees. He been with the Yankees for a while. Anybody who's good friends with Steinbrenner, he told me he was trying to get me with the Yankees. So he said, um, the next day he goes, I got good news and bad news. <laughs> I said, okay, give me the bad news. He said, the bad news is um, they, they want you to go Puerto Rico and throw first before the Marlins will guarantee the contract. I said, okay, what's the good news? The good news is we take the same deal with the Yankees and you can sign a contract right now before you go to Puerto Rico. I said, we got to take the deal with the, with the Yankees. Yeah. That's... Two, two, two days later, my nephew Gary called me. He goes, man, what happened? How did you sign the Yankees? I thought you had a deal with us. I said, yeah, but you guys changed. You wanted me to go to Puerto Rico if I signed a deal. He goes, no, we never said that. And find out that Ray, he made the whole story up for me to sign with the Yankees. Which, <laughs> and the intern, it worked out for the best, you know, because I love New York. I want to stay in New York, even though, the, you know, the Wilpons want to cut ties. I get it. But the way it happened wasn't right. It made me look bad. But the way it all turned out, it was everything, you know, winning the two rows series with the Yankees. There's no hitter in New York. Because I always wanted to make it right with the fans the way, you know, it ended in 94. So um, I was very happy for the opportunity to play. Um, first time I met with Mr. Steinbrenner after I signed the deal, I mean, my dad was there. His only concern was, what have you been doing with your years off? We didn't talk baseball at all. He was more concerned about me, the person, and that made me feel, you know, that much better and, and welcoming with the, to the Yankees. And, um, Turned out great, and you know, and just to fast forward to 2000, uh, when we beat the Yankees in the World Series, and I ended up, ret- I mean, beating the Mets in the World Series, and I retired. Nothing against the Mets, I'm always going to be a Met, but the way it went down because um, in '95 when they want to cut ties, I wanted to stay with the Mets. I said I was time for whatever. They said no, unfortunately, you know, go our separate ways. So I pitched with the Yankees '96, '97. After '97, I called them Mets again. Talked with Steve Phillips. I like to come back. So we don't have any room. I wish you all the best. I went to Cleveland, 98, 99. After 99, I called the Mets again. I'd like to come back. Doc, we wish you the best, but, you know, we've got nothing here. I signed with Houston, pitched one game, get traded to Tampa. I had eight starts. I get released. I called the Mets again. I said, I'll go to AAA. I'll do whatever I got to do. I just want to finish my career with the Mets. I don't care about the money. So, unfortunately, I wish you all the best. Got nothing there. Mr. Steinbrenner called me himself. Do you still want to play? I said, yes. I was living in Tampa at the time. He said, okay, show up at the complex, work with Billy Connors. If it don't work out, you come work for me. Went over there, worked out like three weeks, pitched a couple of rookie league games, not nothing special. They called me in office the next morning. I thought I was going to get released. They said, we need a pitch in New York. Uh, it, was, it was a day-night double hitter. They gained, the day game was at Shea, night game at Yankee Stadium. They said, we need you to pitch the day game against the Mets. Oh, wow. I couldn't say I wasn't ready, but <laughs> that's all I wanted, just one more time to go to Shea Stadium. I actually pitched well, pitched five innings, got the win. We beat the Mets. Then we beat the Mets in the World Series. And I said, what a way to retire. Um, what a way to go out. And at that time, I called the Mets again. I said, can I sign for one day to retire the Mets? They told me no. So I retired the Yankee, which is not a bad thing either. But I hear my number is going to get retired here shortly. So that will be a way to finish it. Oh, that's what a story. I mean, I was just going to jump into if before we move on to the. Uh, I hope I wasn't talking too fast. No, I think that's story. that's great. I mean, I, that is just I just was going to ask about the the no hitter. I mean, I remember watching it. I remember someone calling me on the phone when you beat Seattle, and it's like early in the game. They're like, Dwight looks great in this game. And I remember watching it. And you won two zero, and that must have been great to have your you know one no hitter you know 
in, in Yankee oh Stadium like that for that win. Oh, you have no idea. And plus, like, you know, because prior to that, I actually got benched. I started out 0-3 that year. Torrey took me out of the rotation. And they were trying to decide whether to release me or send me down. Unfortunately, my good friend David Cohen got the aneurysm in his arm. And, and Steinbrenner said, put Gooden back in the rotation. Torrey said, I don't think he's he's ready. Steinbrenner said, put Gooden back in the rotation. My fourth start back in the rotation was the no-hitter. And the day that I pitched the no-hitter, I was supposed to go home to build my dad, who was having open-heart surgery the next day. And that morning, I thought he would probably want me to pitch, even though I had my flight. So I called Torrey. said, I'm coming in. I'm going to pitch. I'm not going home. He said, go home. Take as much time you need. Come back when you're ready. I said, no, I'll be there tonight to pitch. And then I had to call my mom, who didn't take it as well. I said, no, you have to be here. Your dad is expecting you. You need the support. All your family's going to be here. You have to come. So I actually end up hanging up on my mom, feeling that bad. So obviously you cheer up a little bit um, throughout the day. I get to the ballpark. And the first three of that game, I would stand in the walkway between the clubhouse and the dugout, wondering if my dad's going to be okay, that make the right decision. Am I going to see him again, not see him again? Not until the sixth inning when I realized I had a no-hitter. You look at the scoreboard to see who's coming up, and you see no runs, no hits, no errors. You're like, oh, man. We got a no-hitter going. Even though it's Seattle, who, in my mind, had the best-hitting team in baseball in 1996. You know, you're thinking, I got a shot, but, you know, let's just try to get the win. Um, the ninth inning of the game, I walked the first two guys, and Mel Sarmar, and the score's only 2 nothing. Mel Sarmar comes out to the mound. He goes, Doc, how you doing? I said, doesn't matter. I'm not coming out. It's <laughs> your game. And... I got the last out. Paul Sorrento pops up to Jared Jeter and saying the ball was in the air forever. They made the last out. You know, I'm cheering. I'm jumping up and down. My teammates are carrying me off the field. And all you're thinking about is where I was the prior year, early in the season, you know, in the bullpen, about to get released. Is my dad going to be okay? What's going to happen? Obviously, you don't sleep that night. And I took a ball from the game home to the hospital the next day. And when I got there, he had the surgery. The doctor said, watch the game. He never made it home from the hospital, but the last game he saw me pitch was a no-hitter, and that's what made it that much more special. Oh, my. What a story. <laughs> that's uh, – and what did – after that was done, what what um, what did Stein – what did George, what did your teammates – like, what did Jeter say? What did Steinbrenner say? What oh, was – Oh, man, that was, like, unbelievable because Steinbrenner let – me, let me move back. So, after I saw up 0-3, I walked out of Yankee Stadium with my wife at the time, and I said, George likes to meet my wife. He goes, when are you going to win the Elfin game? You know, so <laughs> – after that no-hitter, he goes, man, no matter what happens the rest of the year, you're my hero. And the hit that come from George Steinbrenner, that meant the road to me and gave me the road of confidence. Even though you have been playing a while, I have been playing you know, 11, 10 years at a time. But when you have an owner like that tell you that I'm a hero to him or what I just accomplished, that meant the road to me. That's a lot. Man. I got a chance to work for George when I retired for six years and get to know him, the man, with this a tremendous feeling as well. Wow, that's amazing. Do you think with the Mets – uh, Steve Cohn now, who owns it, is so is a true Mets fan, not like the Wilpons, who it seemed like they wanted to own the Brooklyn Dodgers. Do you think you're going to see a lot of the Mets come back? Is it going to be, are we going to get more of a sense about the Mets' history and those things? I mean, they just, you know, they t- it took them forever to put the statue up for Tom Seaver. Uh, have you got any, has Cohn reached out to you? Has someone from the Mets reached out to you about more, about becoming more involved with the Mets? Uh, 100%. They are definitely involved with the alumni now. And while I was with the Yankees, you know, I used to go to spring training. You see DiMaggio, Guidry, Yogi, Goose. I mean, all these guys, Reggie Jackson, the Mets, you know, they have Franco come in for a week, Piazza come in for a week, and that's pretty much it. 
Um, no knock on the guy, but that was it. But now with the new ownership, he's into having the fans, you know, take part what they want on Twitter, getting in contact with alumni, having different stuff at the ballpark. And I think that's great, for, obviously, for the alumni, but it's great for the fans, great for organization, great for the, the team that they have now. Just, you know, the knowledge you can get, picking the knowledge from these guys. Because we had the guys on our team that had a lot of baseball knowledge. So I think it's a win-win for everybody, and I'm glad with the new ownership and the direction that the organization is headed now. I heard, was it the story is in, when they met the Shea, in 2008 when they went to Shea Stadium to City Field, you went and signed the wall, and they're like, you weren't supposed to sign the wall, so they had to take the wall oh, out my God, somewhere. That was unbelievable. So I go there. Because uh, it was uh, 2000, 2008, uh, it was City Field. So uh, it was City Field, the first year at City Field, I think 2009. So my nephew, Gary Sheffield, was playing. So I was going to see him play. And a guy asked me to sign a wall at the restaurant there. He was the general manager. Whatever. He had the Sharpie. He handed me the Sharpie. I signed the wall. They wanted me to put some sats. So I put, like, work of the year, Cy Young, whatever. The next day, Jay Horace called me. He goes, Doc, what are you doing? You can't be signing the stadium. He made it seem like I was writing graffiti over the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, the guy asked me to sign. It wasn't a good idea to do that. And so then, I guess they tried to get the guy, they tried to remove the guy from the park. They took that part of the wall out of the stadium, and somehow the media got hold to it, and the media buried the mess on it about that. Later that year, no, the next year, they put myself, Strawberry, Cashman, and David Johnson all into the Hall of Fame all at once. When normally you have your day, like when they put, say, Mookie, Franco, Keith and all those guys in, it was their day. They threw all the 86 guys in at one time. Like, so let's get rid of these guys. Let's get them out of here. <laughs> you know, that's the way I felt. But the new ownership definitely brought the good, warm feeling back. It makes you feel like he was a part of something special. What, what, who was the toughest hitter you ever faced? For me, it was Chili Davis. You thought, like, uh, Tony Gwynn or uh, Bonds, but Chili was the one guy I could not get out. I mean, back then, you could, you know, you could hit guys, you could throw it up high and tight try to he made me get the ball down in the strike zone. He will foul off the tough pitches. Well, I made a mistake, he made me pay. But even when he went to the Yankees and I was in Cleveland, I could not get this guy out. He was by far my toughest hitter. We had Dave Parker on our show. We've had Dave Parker, Rod. You, you were probably after Rod Carew. We had Rod Carew, Dave Parker uh, on our show. I don't did you ever did you ever face Dave Parker? I faced Parker and Parker used to always tell me, you know, if I ever get you, he never got a home run, he got some hits, but remember how Parker he hit the home run? Especially with Cincinnati, he was starting to trot going towards Cincinnati dugout, pointing his fingers out, then he goes back in. He said, if I ever get you, Doc, it's going to be the longest trot you ever seen in life. <laughs> That's what he used to tell me, but he never got me. And Parker was a good friend of mine. I know he's struggling a little bit. Um, but I love Parker, and he's another guy I think should be in the Hall of Fame. I, I, it's amazing. I, I, we brought this up. He has 2,800 hits, rolling his 2,000. He has more home runs, and he's uh, viewed as one of the best defensive outfielders of all time. So it's shocking that you know, when Roland gets in and, Bar- and Parker doesn't. But uh, Yeah, that's unbelievable. Unbelievable. He uh, should be in by far. Because he's one of the most intimidating hitters that play in our area as, as well. So I don't understand. Hopefully get it right. So they talk about, you know, about current baseball has now, people say that one of the reasons why your career at the end, you were struggling is that you've pitched too much. And now the pitchers, you know, you don't ever pitch over 100 pitches. If you see a pitcher hit a pitch 110, it's like, what's going on? It's crazy. You can't, you know, know all those things. What do you think about pitch counts? What do you think about pulling pitchers after four or five innings? Those things. See, that's another thing. And you guys are all working in my favor. I need you guys to be on the committee <laughs> to play my case for me. You guys are right on but you're right. You know, my time, they say, oh, you know, you pitch. During my time, I, I wouldn't have done it no other way. That's just the way it was brought up. You know, you try to go deep into games. You want to finish the games. 
But now I don't fault the pitchers. It's more the, the teams. Like if baseball is like a copycat league, like if one team does something and they have success, then all the teams does it. So I don't necessarily blame the pitchers individually. I blame the way that the baseball system is going now with analytics and all that. But I think I'd rather have a guy, if he's pitching, say, six, seven innings and, and totally dominating, I'd rather have that guy go back out for the eighth, ninth inning, even if he's at 100 pitches. Um, as long as he's not coming back from an injury or having any arm problems, I'll let him go. Then take a chance from a middle reliever coming in. I haven't seen him pitch that day. But they'll be going, <clears throat> as you mentioned, a guy throwing 100 pitches on facing lineup the third time around. To me, it's a big difference throwing 100 pitches in three innings as opposed to throwing 100 pitches in seven, eight innings. So hopefully they get back to letting these pitches go deep in the games because they're killing the bullpens, I think. And, you know, and plus, you're having more injuries now than you had before because everything's about velocity, everything's about spin rate. They're not teaching these guys mechanics anymore. You know, if you throw a, if you throw 98, 99, they're going to put you in there. Like, you take a guy like Greg Maddox or Tom Glavin, they wouldn't even look at these guys today because their velocity wasn't hitting 97, 98. It was more 90-91. What did you use to throw the ball at? What was your speeds What did you, back then? In my prime, I was anywhere between 96 and 98, you know. Um, and plus, from what I hear, I don't, I don't have any way to bike this up, but from what I hear, they, they, they get the speed when it, in a guy's hand, when at least a hand. You know, my era, they was getting the speed once across the plate. So that's the difference now where everybody's throwing, you know, 97, 98. <laughs> and what about what about like now they're going to have pitch clocks? You know they have pitch clocks, but sort of next year it's going to be a pitch clock. They they eliminated the shift, all these different things that are coming in in terms of the rules. Uh, what do you think about what do you think about a pitch clock? With that, I mean you pitch pretty quickly, so I don't know if that would have affected you as much. But yeah, I just think it's too much now. Me, me personally, I'm a fan of the game, but I'm also an old school fan. I think they're messing up a beautiful game. Um, I like the the replay. Like in the outfield with a foul home runs or the guy make a catch, especially in the playoffs or road series. I like that. But all the other stuff where you stop him for the replay, with the guy still in second base or the tag up, or now the pitch clock and he's got a certain amount of time, you're going to do two pickoffs. I think they mess up a beautiful game. It's coming into a video game now. They're taking the final way now. Even with all the analytics, you know, the, the, the shifts and all this stuff, it's too much. They're not letting these guys learn how to play the game because you're telling them everything. I mean, now. Even when we look at the outfielders, they got all these armbands on like a quarterback. <laughs> Looking at way shot player guy. That guy is learned by watching the game. Right. That's a good point. That's a good point. That's a good point. You know, you, you mentioned about going going through a lineup the third time in a lineup. You know, people are saying now, oh, it's impossible. You know, you don't want to have a pitcher pitch the third time through a lineup. That's when they're going to get all their hits. But, of course, you know, you pitched uh, in your in your life. You pitched, uh, I'm trying to get how many total complete games, 68 complete games, 24 shutouts. So you've seen the lineup many times. So what is, what is it like the third and fourth time through a lineup? I think they're saying, like, the, the hitters have seen you now. They, they they got you now or whatever. But that's fine. If, if your stuff is on, it doesn't matter if the hitters have seen you. I mean, it's, still, it's about making your pitches, eliminating mistakes around the middle of the plate, reading bat speed. That's about pitching. Um, but they, they feel like the hitters have seen you now. The stuff is not as sharp. But I, I totally disagree with that. I mean, every pitcher's individual is differently. Some pitches you get a stroke as the game goes. Most aces, most power guys especially, if you don't get them in the early part of the game, you're not going to get those guys. So I totally disagree with all the analytics stuff to that. I think some analytics stuff is good, but some of it's bad. I'd rather go with a guy to he shows me he's getting tired or the hitter's catching up. Then you make the change. But just to make it because we don't want him to face the lineup the third time around because analytics says this, analytics says that, 
that's totally bull. I mean, the same way when they say you can't throw this guy fastballs, you can't throw this guy breaking balls, he's a good fastball hitter. But it doesn't tell you whose fastball he's a great hitter against or whose curveball he's a right, great hitter right, against. Right, right, Everybody's stuff is different. So, I mean, you got to look deeper into this stuff than what they do. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the analytics, I, I, it's just like they're just, you know, someone has to enter, you know, a number in terms of what it was and who's it against. And, and you see that in basketball, too, um, you know, and it just it depends on situations and, and the person entering has to make determinations. So what? 100%. And you don't know if that guy, if he had his stuff that day, if he didn't have his stuff, I mean, you don't know that. I mean, some guys, like I just mentioned, Tilly Davis, they can tell me, don't, you can't throw that, you can't throw that. That's just one guy I have trouble with anyway, so I got to keep the guys off base. Right, right. And, and with him, I got to walk Chile four times. I walk him four times. That's where you approach that. But all these other things, you can't first got this, you can't first got that. Because more than any position, the pitcher, you're taught to be aggressive and attack. Once you start pitching defensively, you're already in trouble. And I use that as an example. I go back to the, the uh, 2015 Mets. They had, they had Matt Harvey, they had DeGrom, they had Syndergaard, all these guys doing um, Stephen Matz. All these guys doing 98, 99. They're playing Kansas City in the World Series. They say Kansas City, the report was Kansas City is a great hitting fastball team. Okay, that's fine. But then these guys start off curveball, ball one, changeup, ball two. Now you have to come with a fastball, and everybody in the world knows what you're coming with. It makes it a lot easier to hit. Instead of going with your best pitch, locate it, and, and go with your best stuff. If you're throwing 97, 98, and these guys are fastball hitters, but you, you know, you're throwing quality pitches, so what they hit, they're not going to do much damage. But when you fall behind and they know it's coming, and they could cheat you, it's a big difference. So I think that kind of calls the mess in 2015, in my opinion. So we're talking about um, pitching in New York, and you're probably the expert pitching on the Yankees and the Mets and being a, the dominant pitcher at a time. So many pitchers, it seems, comes to the city and comes to New York and in the bigger markets, and it's one thing to pitch. You know, I push A.J. Burnett, you know, who's a pirate pitcher and stuff like that. You come to New York, and, it's, and, and they can't withstand the pressure. They can't. They just, they're not the same pitcher. Then they go back to a smaller market, a Kansas City or a Pittsburgh, and they're successful. But what is, was it like that it is pitching in New York that makes it so difficult for so many of these pitchers who come there and sign the big money contracts? I think sometimes it's the expectations that they put on themselves, the expectations that the fans have, the media. And these guys, they have a bad game. You know, they get booed. But I always try to tell pitchers that come in, um, like Kenny Rogers. I played with Kenny Rogers with the Yankees. I grew up with Kenny Rogers in Tampa. But a lot of times he's already defeated because he's running about with the media. He's running about the fans. Are they going to boo me? And I think if these guys can understand that, if you get booed, they'll boo on your performance, not necessarily you. They'll boo on your performance. That's like if you go to a Broadway play, and the play's not any good, or whoever's singing, forget the notes, you're going to boo. But you're booing the performance, because you don't really know the, 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 uh, the person or the player. And if the guys can you know, get over that, I think they'll be fine. I understand that playing in New York, in my opinion, is one of the best places to play, because the fans and the media have a little bit more knowledge, and they're more into the game than... Say, no knock on Cleveland or anything like that, but when I played in Cleveland, you had a sellout crowd, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't as noisy. The fans weren't really on their feet. It was more of a place where you just go meet after, after work or whatever. That's what it felt like. But, and no knock expectations playing in New York. But I think a lot of times players are already mentally defeated when they come there. They don't have success right away, or if they hadn't played in a big market, the expectation they put on themselves and all that just overwhelms them. Um, and then we're talking to Doc Gooden, legendary New York Madden Yankee pitcher. What 
the the current Mets. You must be excited. The fact that they're it seems like they're spending money. You know, they were so cheap for so many years, and now it's like whoever is out there, we're going to go get. And it must be exciting. And you're probably really looking forward to this year. Are you going to be able? Are you are you going to be at spring training working with the team? Uh, I won't be working with the team, but I'm definitely excited about it. Uh, from fan fan, I go out for spring training every year with a couple of friends. We just kind of meet the new guys and hang out, um, watch a couple of games. Go to, I go to a lot of games. I live in New York. Um, I go to a lot of Yankee games as well. Uh, but I'm always a be a Met. And it's great to see that you have the ownership that's willing to put a great product on the field for the fans who's paying all this money you know, for tickets, for souvenirs, hot dog and burger, whatever, parking. But you make it worth it now. You come out, you have a chance. You have a great team on the field every day. It makes it exciting to watch because – Always said in New York, you can't rebuild in New York. You got to put a successful team out there on the field, and the fans would come out and they would support uh, 100%. And so it's good to see that. I'm glad the ownership now get that. No knock against the Wolfpons, but you have an owner now that understands that and is in a position to put a winning team on the field every time. Now it's up to the players to go out and perform. So to follow you on your in, in your social media, it's at docgooden16. Is that correct? Is that the right uh, moniker? Yes, sir. Yes, at, sir. At docgooden, D-O-C, gooden16. And uh, any shows or anything you're you're doing that you want to promote or tell people to, to go to down here in Florida or even nationally? Uh, Florida, I don't have anything going right now, but um, we're getting ready to make a big splash for stuff coming out. Um, you look forward to seeing the Doc Gooden story. My movie's getting ready to go in the process. We're going to start filming here shortly, so I'm excited about that. Whoa, whoa, whoa! Tell us, wait, you're, you're, so there's a movie coming out. Is it going to be on Netflix? What's it going to be on? Hopefully, it's going to be at the at theaters or Netflix. One or two, we're not sure yet. But it's going to be from my my childhood all the way to like the no hitter. But guys can see how I grew up and you know everything that's going on. I've got that going now. And um, in Florida, you know, I do a lot of stuff in Florida. Like I said, I mentioned Belmont Heights Little League in Tampa. Man, Gary will be doing some stuff down there coming up this summer. So um, stay looking out for that as well. That's fantastic. Well, when spring training starts, when you come over to this side of uh, Florida, we'd love, I'd love to go, you know, stop in the studio. We'd love to go to the game with you. You know, there, there's three stages. You go up to Port St. Lucie. You can play the ballpark of the Palm Beaches and Roger Dean Stadium. You have everybody playing. Oh, for sure. Let's, let's definitely stay in touch and let's do that. And you guys keep up the good work. And thank you guys for having me. Oh, we'll definitely do that. I appreciate it. I hope your ankle feels better and gets a quick recovery from that. But oh, I know. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And uh, my listeners, I'm sure, are appreciate hearing your stories and reliving some of the best years of baseball I've ever seen in terms of your pitching. Every night that you pitched, it was must-see TV, must-be at the stadium. So thanks a lot for coming on Iron Sports. I appreciate oh. it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you guys for having me. And I look forward to talking to you guys again soon.